Uh, good evening, everyone. And I also want to begin by acknowledging the Nidwal and Nambu people on whose lands we meet tonight. It's an honor to introduce our speakers on the stage. Co-authors Corey Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin are producers of both knowledge and culture. And joined together in their book, Choke Point Capitalism, to tell a rich and complex story about how culture and economy entangle in a data-driven digital age. Of both Corey and Rebecca and Andrew, I am a fan. Uh, Corey Doctor is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist. In addition to Choke Point Capitalism, he's a history of hit books with several works forthcoming. In 2023 and 2024, we can expect Red Team Blues, The Lost Cause, published with Tor, and The Internet Con, published with Verso. He maintains a daily blog at Pluralistic.net, works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is an MIT Media Lab research affiliate, visiting professor of computer science at Open University, visiting professor of practice at UNC uh, School of Library and Information Science, co-founded the UK Open Rights Group, the open source peer-to-peer -peer software company OpenCola, and serves on the boards and advisory boards of the Participatory Culture Foundation, the Clarion Foundation, the Open Technology Fund, and the Metabrains Foundation. In 2020, Corey was inducted into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. <laughs> There's two more. Uh, uh, Professor Rebecca Giblin is an ARC Future Fellow at the Melbourne Law School, where she works at the intersection of law and culture. She's director of the Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia and leads the ARC-funded Authors' Interest and E-Lending Projects, as well as Untapped, the Australian Literary Heritage Project. Rebecca is a leading figure in Australia and abroad on all things culture industry and sustains a relentless support for culture producers. Her new book, Choke Point Capitalism, which we'll be talking about tonight, explores how we can recapture creative labor markets from big tech and big content to get artists paid. Finally, our co-authors are in the very capable hands of Andrew Lee, Assistant Minister for Competition at Charities and Treasury and Federal Member for Fenner and the ACT. Andrew holds a PhD in public policy from Harvard and is a former professor of economics here at the Australian National University. His achievements make for a long list and include receipt of the Economic Society of Australia's Young Economist Award and induction as a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences. He's written 10 books in about as many years. Please join me in welcoming these speakers to the stage. Thanks very much, Jenny, and it's a real pleasure to be emceeing tonight's event. Uh, can I too acknowledge the Ngunnawal Elders on whose lands we're meeting today, uh, and to acknowledge uh, Colin Steele. Uh, what Jeff Bezos promised to be to eBooks, Colin Steele actually is to the ANU literary scene. Uh, nerds like me love competition policy, but you know, I think we know that for many Australians, they'd rather play Monopoly than talk about Monopoly. Uh, what I love about choke point capitalism, Corey and Rebecca, is the way in which you tell the story of big tech through the services that surround us, the Spotify's, the YouTube's, the Apple's, uh, the Facebook's, and draw out a really rich story that goes both to competition and culture. And one of the things that struck me is the way in which you essentially flip around a lot of what is talked about in corporate strategy to explain how it can hurt consumers. Our former head of the competition watchdog, Rod Sims, likes to say that Michael Porter's five forces strategy model that's taught in business schools is actually five forces that can 
downplay competition. And one of the things in the book you talk about is, is Amazon's uh, flywheel. And you talk about how this serves an anti-competitive effect. I wonder if we might kick off uh, telling the story of Amazon and what its flywheel does to competition. When we started uh, work on this book, we looked at a whole bunch of different culture industries and we realized that they were all playing from the same playbook and that Amazon had pioneered it. And in fact, they're so proud of it. They've drawn it into a diagram and they boast about it as this virtuous cycle. And the way they tell the story is that um, they start with um, this you know, lower cost structure, which uh, then allows them to offer lower prices, which attracts customers, which means more sellers then want to come to the platform, which means that they can offer better range, better customer experience, and then continue to lower the prices, become more efficient, and it goes around this virtuous cycle, right? That all sounds terrific, who can argue with that? But what we show is that it's not a virtuous cycle, it's a vicious one, right? It's, it's not about making things better, it's about squeezing everybody for every last drop. So what they're really setting out to do in their, in their flywheel is to lock in customers, Right. And the way that they do that very often is by getting a, a whole bunch of um, delicious venture capital dollars that they get by promising investors that they're going to choke point their market, that they're going to be able to capture everybody and lock them in. So you lock in the customers um, and it might be that you offer sweeteners to get them to come. Those are those artificially low prices. Amazon started off by selling books, you know, very often below cost, which attracted lots of people. Then um, you lock in your suppliers. And again, you start off really friendly, right? The publishers at the beginning thought that Amazon was going to be the savior because at the time they were being really squeezed by the mega bookstores and the big box retail stores that were hunting them for margin. And Amazon said, we'll, we'll help you by providing an alternative. But then once you've got them in, and maybe you've, used, you've got some extra profits from that, but also some uh, of those venture capital dollars, you use that to squeeze out your competition. And... Amazon most famously did this. There's so many examples, but uh, we love the one of when it went after diapers.com, right? Um, I think it was in a single month, they blew 200 million US dollars to blow this company out of the water because they had dared to sell a product that Amazon decided it wanted to be the one that sold. Now, $200 million might be an expensive price to corner the, the, the market on nappies, but it's a really, really cheap way of signaling to everybody that if you dare to impinge on territory that Amazon de decides is theirs, then you will face the same fate. And it's really well known in VC circles, um, there's, there's something called a kill zone. You will not get VC funding for you know, these areas that are within the, the, the purview of these big firms because they know exactly what's gonna happen if you dare to compete. And so that's what's happening, These we've got these, these companies, you know, say what you will about capitalism, but competition is supposed to be fundamental to it. But we've seen 40 years of policy that told us, don't worry about monopolies, don't worry about growing market concentration. Um, that, that, that's not gonna be a problem. And in fact, the richest people on the planet now very often have achieved that wealth by systematically eliminating it. And they're brazen about it too. Like they come and say the quiet part out loud. Peter Thiel famously, Competition is for losers. The orthodoxy taught in business schools, like, like Sim says, it's don't make the thing, don't provide the services that people need. That's only gonna get you regular rich. If you wanna get dumb rich, 
and they all want to get dumb rich. Find a way to get in the middle between the people who are making the thing and, and doing the thing and the people who need the thing and use your ability to mediate access between them to squeeze everyone for what they've got. Corey, one of the great uh, strengths of Amazon is its extraordinary market share in ebooks. Uh, you say a 90% market share, which means their market share in ebooks is almost what Google's is in search. And essential to that is this idea of digital rights management. Tell us about how digital rights management evolved, and, and maybe you want to tell us also about your own experience of uh, trying to move around the system. Sure. Uh, it's Well, ebooks, their market share is actually slightly lower. It's audiobooks where they have that share, and it's through a division called Audible. And it, I'll note just in passing here that like so many of the important uh, capital moats that surround Amazon, so many of the anti-competitive hedges they have, it's not because they built a product on their own. They bought another firm. And historically, up until the kind of Reagan-Thatcher era, uh, we looked with great suspicion upon firms that acquired other firms in order to expand. We, we, you know, the, the economists, when we talk about competition law and whether we should punish big business, they say, oh, we don't want to punish someone for being successful. But Amazon didn't get successful with audiobooks. They bought the success with audiobooks, just like Google, which is a company that made one and a half products, right? They made a, a search engine and a Hotmail clone, and then everything else that, they, that they've done successfully, they bought from someone else, and everything they built in-house has crashed and burned. Uh, they're a buying things company that likes to pretend they're Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, fizzing with ideas. So um, uh, in terms of audiobooks, so the audiobooks that are sold on Amazon are non-negotiably sold, wrapped in a kind of encryption wrapper called digital rights management. And under American law, providing someone with a tool to remove digital rights management is a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. And importantly, this is true irrespective of whether a copyright infringement takes place. In fact, it's true irrespective of whether the rights holder authorizes it. So I, as the creator of an audiobook, can't authorize you as the person who bought it from Amazon to remove the DRM. We, th they've created a regime in which it's possible to violate copyright law without infringing copyright, which is a hell of a sentence, right? And when the US Free Trade Agreement came to, uh, the US uh, Trade Representative came to Australia to negotiate the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement, they insisted on comparable terms here. And so the, this law has been replicated all over the earth. Uh, US Free Trade, uh, the US Trade Rep is kind of patient zero in this epidemic of dumbness that, that is in all countries. Canada got it in 2012. And um, uh, what this means, is that when you buy a, a book from Audible uh, for, say, $10, that's $10 that you will then have to forfeit if you delete the audio, uh, Audible app and go somewhere else because you cannot convert your audiobook to play in a non-Amazon authorized app. Um, and so what that means for sellers, for writers, is that we can't afford to leave Audible. Every time we sell a book to you, we are fashioning a rod with which to beat us, right? It's a it's leverage that Amazon has over us. And we tell in the story in the book the story of some uh, Audible authors. The uh, independent authors use Audible's ACX platform, which is their self serve platform for indies, um, who discovered a, a hundred million dollar plus wage theft that they dubbed Audible Gate. And we, we can maybe delve into some of the details of that later. But the important thing is that that was only really possible because of this DRM. And so, you know, the DRM creates these high switching costs, right? And those high switching costs lock in authors. So we don't sell, uh, I don't sell my audiobooks on Audible because of this. 
Uh, it has come at some financial cost. My my agent told me that uh, based on what his other authors do, that uh, if I were willing to uh, uh, relax this policy, I wouldn't have a mortgage anymore, and my kid's college fund would be fully funded. But you know, it's, I, no one becomes an author for for the money, notwithstanding. Uh, um, uh, Dr. Johnson, it, it really isn't a good uh, economic prospect. So uh, uh, I, I'm not in that for the money. So this is what I'm happy to do. And so when we did the audiobook for this for for this book, we didn't sell it through Audible. We kickstarted it, and we sell it on the other platforms. And partway through the Kickstarter, as a stunt, we packaged up the chapter about how Audible steals from authors, and we turned it into an Audible exclusive that we. <laughs> uploaded to the Audible, through the Audible self-serve platform. We also did this with a chapter about how Spotify screws artists as well. It's the only part of the book you can get on Spotify. We keep getting like mentions on Twitter with like total gotchas, just like, aha, you say you're against all of this, but your book's on Audible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, don't give them your money. We'll explain what that is. It's fine. It's just a stunt, you um, know? To our horror though, we still, we've sold like 300 copies of it. <laughs> So let's move from books to music. Uh, you talk about the long history of artists being exploited by their recording contracts, um, the Beatles getting a penny a song to be shared between four, uh, Prince having to change his name to an unpronounceable symbol and getting a slave tattooed on him. But you say that things have gotten worse for artists and particularly for songwriters. Why is that? So... The early 2000s were, you know, we don't want to romanticize this period because it was blood on the walls for a lot of musicians. Like suddenly the advent of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, um, they, they lost income. People that used to be able to make money from their music no longer could. But the silver lining to it was that there was a democratization of distribution. It used to be that if you wanted to get your music into stores, you had to really go through the major labels. Um, and there were just really breathtaking abuses that we've, we've documented. Um, and yeah, indeed. So uh, when Prince did change his name to that symbol, I think a lot of us at the time uh, didn't really get it. And we were sort of rolling our eyes a little bit and thinking, uh, that, that guy seems like a little bit of a weirdo. But um, actually it was a political protest. Uh, and, and he was he was complaining about a lot of things, but in particular the way that record labels own your masters, even uh, if you have um, made them hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and his point was, if you don't own your masters, your master owns you. Uh, but yes, with the democratization um, of distribution and also making music, there were lots of new ways to, to get it out to audiences. And that meant that the, the record labels had to reform their biggest abuses. You know, they stopped charging breakage on MP3s, for example. Breakage was a deduction that had been introduced into record contracts back when records were made of shellac and they would break literally between the warehouse and the shop. And so there was a breakage deduction. And the record labels um, still impose that on MP3s because Fuck you. That's why. Okay, they could. That's the uh, that's the formal, generally acceptable uh, accounting practices name for that line item. <laughs> um, but what we've seen is so so that that led that led to improvements. But now what we've seen is that the way that those the way that those major labels used to be so central is allowing them to shape the future of the music industry as well. Um, and so 
the way they're doing that is through these enormous reservoirs of copyrights. And the copyrights over sound recordings last a really long time, you know, like you know, 90 years. And um, once you've, and, and, and again, it's not that they've got those copyrights because they invested in making all of this music. It's because very often they've like bought up other labels at fire sale prices, including at the time where the peer-to-peer -peer, um, popularization meant revenues went down very much. Um, what they're doing with those reservoirs is we've now got three record companies that control 70% of the global market for recorded music. And so when some smart people came along and said, we think that people are actually happy to pay for music. We think that the reason why peer-to-peer -peer file sharing is so successful is because people are really excited about the ability to access the entirety of the world's music very easily and not because they're determined to get everything for free and, and want musicians to starve. The major label said, okay, well, you can't do this without our catalogs because we own everything and we're not gonna let you use our catalogs unless you give us a big chunk in your company. And so they got this enormous equity stake in Spotify. And like lots of people are familiar with this, um, you know, this, this complaint that, that streaming doesn't pay very well to artists, but they're less familiar with the fact that the reason it works the way that it does is because that's what the big three shaped it to be, right? The, the streaming was shaped by the big three labels to benefit the big three labels. Um, and so it shouldn't be that they get to determine the future of music because they were so central in the past. But that's exactly what happens when we give them this outsized control of the future of the industry through these, these copyright reservoirs. Yeah, so I think that's a point that's worth emphasizing. Streaming could in, excuse me, could in principle have squeezed the record labels, but in practice ended up squeezing the artists. And, and you have some stuff in the book about how low the revenues are. You quote the cellist Zoe Keating and uh, saying that she gets a third of a cent per play, uh, and uh, meaning that everyone in the if everyone in the room streamed a Zoe Keating track, then she would get uh, a less than a dollar. Uh, why is it that uh, that the artists haven't been able to to band together to get a bigger share? I should emphasise it's not that that anyone should be being squeezed here, that, that really ideally what we want is for everybody to get a fair share of the value of the, the work that they put in. Um, we, can, we can see one of the, if we look at where the money actually goes, right, uh, there are people who've made a lot of money from streaming and they're the investors in Spotify. And so this created a huge public, of, uh, a huge conflict of interest when the labels took that, that, that deal, right, and they got uh, that equity stake. They were, partly owners of the company, but they were also charged with negotiating the um, access deals for their recording artists. Uh, what that meant is that when they went, and, and, and their equity stake, they thought they wouldn't have to share with artists, but if they got royalties, then they would. And so what that meant is that um, right before Spotify went to IPO, they had to go back to the negotiating table and, and relicense the catalogs. You can see that that gives them an, an enormous amount of power to strike a better deal for artists, right? Because there's no way Spotify can go public without those catalogs, it would be worth nothing. And instead, what they negotiated for was less money in royalties. What did that do to the value of their equity stake? <laughs> Massively up. But it's not just that they screwed over their own artists because, um, and, and, and by the way, the way that they, they screwed it over was insulated very much by the fact that they get these like fat advances, they get free advertising, and of course the equity stake. 
But they've also got these most favored nation clauses that mean they that Spotify is not allowed to give any other label more money than what they give the big three. So when the the little labels came back to the negotiating table, they suddenly found that the ceiling was lower for their artists than had been there before. And so you can see how intensely problematic it is that we have these massive conflicts of interest that, again, everything is aimed at sucking away far more than a fair share of value. Yeah, it's somewhat counterintuitive, I think, to, to think of buyers as being powerful rather than sellers. We all know the term monopoly because there's a family-destroying board game uh, with that name, but none of us really think about monopsony, the, the, the powerful buyer problem. And here we see how one powerful buyer, right, Spotify, can uh, end up changing and shaping the, uh, the, uh, the entire market, right? Not just the part of the market that's, that's controlled by its shareholders, but everybody else in the market as well. Um, this is a real problem with Amazon. Again, Amazon is now officially taking more than 50% of every dollar from its independent sellers in junk fees. Uh, so the majority of money that you spend on a non-Amazon seller goes to Amazon. A lot of that goes to what they euphemistically call their ad business, which is a $31 billion a year business, where they make people bid to go to the top of your search results, irrespective of whether they're a good match for what you search for. And so the people who are selling the thing you're searching for will be at the bottom of the page unless they outbid people who want to come on ahead of them when you're, when you're searching. This is why when you search Amazon, of the first five screens, 50% of those first five screens are ads, uh, and of what remains, a significant fraction of it are products that Amazon itself has cloned from uh, the most successful sellers on its platform. And uh, Amazon also has this most favored nation deal with its sellers, which means that uh, because they need to raise prices to recoup that 50%, no one selling consumer goods has a 50% margin. And so in order to not lose money on every sale, they have to raise prices. But the reason we, it doesn't seem like Amazon is more expensive is Amazon has a most favored nation deal. So if you go direct to the seller, if you go to another big seller like Target, it's all going to be sold for the same price that Amazon is selling it at. And this is why the Attorney General of D.C., has filed a lawsuit against Amazon because Amazon has managed to raise prices at every shop uh, by ex extracting these enormous fees from its own sellers. Corey coined a term for this, uh, which is amazing, enshittification. <laughs> Corey, can you just really yeah, briefly sure. explain it? Uh, you know, in, in economics jargon, we have this idea of surpluses, right? It's everything that is uh, latent in the service that isn't required to run the service, all the money left over, profit and whatnot. Um, and when firms start, they like to allocate those surpluses to users. They want to attract a lot of users. Amazon gives everyone a very good deal, gives good prices, subsidized returns, sells goes below what they pay for them, um, make sure that, you know, spends a lot of money making sure the reviews are honest and so on. And then as the users are locked in, and they can get locked in in lots of ways, on Facebook you get locked in by each other, right? You're, you're probably going to struggle to agree on where you're going to go for dinner after this. You're certainly not going to be able to get all your friends to agree on what you're going to do when you leave Facebook. And so you're all holding each other mutually hostage through this collective action problem. Once the users are locked in, then you can attract business customers. Performers show up on YouTube, uh, publishers show up on Facebook, and advertisers. Uh, on Amazon, you get marketplace sellers, Kindle authors, audiobook authors, and so on. And then it allocates those surpluses to them. It makes it cheap to advertise. It gives them a really big share of whatever revenues they generate. Um, it gives them lots of ways to uh, reach other audiences. Sometimes it actually like takes surpluses from users and hands them to them. So when Facebook first uh, decided to compete with MySpace, 
by opening up to the general public and not just American University sell, um, users. They were like, don't use MySpace, use Facebook. MySpace is the website owned by a crepulent evil Australian billionaire who'll spy on you, and Facebook is the website where we will never spy on you, right? <laughs> once, the, once they were loaded up with, with lots of users and the users were holding each other hostages, they cranked up the surveillance so that those business customers could surveil their users. So there's this golden age for publishers where Facebook is just this torrent of traffic that's easily monetized, huge access to audiences, advertisers themselves are finding it very easy to reach people, and today, Facebook reallocates those surpluses to themselves. Nothing in your feed is from a person that you care about. Advertisers are being stolen from at scale. There's um, the new uh, uh, DOJ case, uh, or, or the rather the existing DOJ case against Facebook that, that shows that they were colluding with Google to rig the ad market and steal from advertisers, steal from publishers. The only person getting a good deal at Facebook is Facebook. And Facebook is trying to surf this wave right at the crest of being nearly so useless that you'll leave, but not quite so useless that it's worth enduring the switching costs associated with saying goodbye to all your friends. And this is this this is the equilibrium that there's that there's um, trying to find. This is the equilibrium of, of Harvard Business School, right? It's how do you find the thing where as much surplus as needed is allocated to other players in the supply chain, customers and business customers, so that they'll stay, but not one penny remains that could otherwise be allocated to shareholders. And that's in shittification. It's not your imagination. Everything really is worse. So I love that you've got uh, this principle of monopsony that sits uh, around the book. Indeed, the book is dedicated to uh, the late, great Joan Robinson, who really should have won the Nobel Prize for her work on, uh, on monopsony. Uh, and I want to just stay a little bit on, on how uh, these, this has played out in the music streaming industry, because I think the debate in Australia uh, has there's been a bit around Facebook and Google and, uh, and Apple, less so around Spotify. And, and you talk about how it's, it's not just entrenched power, it's also changed music. You know, I grew up on Dire Straits and uh, remember Telegraph Road, a song which lasts for 14 minutes, which essentially is almost silence for the first minute. Uh, you talk about uh, Drake's new album, 25 songs, an average of three and a half minutes apiece. Why is it that music gets changed in that way under a streaming environment? Well, you know, you treasure what you measure, right? And so when... when uh, um Funds are allocated to performers based on the number of tracks that, that get streamed. Then performers have this incentive to, to change the length of their track. And so, you know, it's, it's like you, we're always going to have to um, pick something to measure. But when there's only one service and it measures the, the fund allocation in one way, you get this great homogenization. It's kind of uh, related to the idea that when you only have three record labels, whatever else you can say about this good and bad, there is one incontrovertible problem with it, which is that ultimately three CEOs decide what all the music is. And in the same way, when there's only one streaming uh, firm, however they configure that firm to measure success becomes the benchmark for everyone. There's a, a famous law in economics, every, uh, every benchmark eventually becomes a target. Right? Uh, and so um, whatever it is that we say defines success becomes the thing that everyone piles in to do. If we say GDP is successful and GDP is money changing hands, then suddenly it's worth sort of burning something down and rebuilding it and burning it down and rebuilding it and burning something down because it, it just gooses your GDP number. There's a way retrospectively where if you look back on a world in which no one is measuring GDP and you say, oh, well, the countries in which there's more economic activity were actually doing better, 
Um, but prospectively, once you say all we're going to do is make GDP go up, it turns out that it's possible to decouple those things. And that's really what's happened in streaming. It's not that distinct from what happened in search. When uh, Larry Page had the, the key insight, really the only major technical insight of Google, it's a 30-year-old insight, which was that if you wanted to figure out which web pages were good, you could count how many links were pointing at them because there was no reason to make a link to another web page unless you thought that there was something important for someone to read there. And so that was true retrospectively. When the Google index was turned on and the PageRank algorithm was applied to it, it just blew everything else out of the water. No more Ask Jeeves, no more AltaVista, goodbye Yahoo. But it's not hard to make links to web pages. And once there was a reason to make uh, links to web pages distinct from uh, some kind of uh, intrinsic uh, feeling that the web page was relevant, we got link farms and, and garbage farms and, and so on. And Google has never really managed to grapple with this. They, they have this huge kind of secretive apparatus where they have hundreds of different signals they listen to to rank pages. They won't tell you what they are because then you could cheat. You know, it's the only realm of security where we say uh, um, security through obscurity might work. And then they just end up in these kind of weird traps because they don't know how to do anything new. So GPT T3 comes along and suddenly you can write an infinite amount of junk spam that will float to the top of search uh, ranking and rather than turning the entire engine of uh, Google uh, technical expertise onto figuring out what is the junk spam and, and filtering it out, they just decide that, that from now on the front end to Google is going to be this thing called BARD, which is just another chatbot that is going to answer your queries not with links to web pages, but with multiple florid paragraphs from a, a system that is like a habitual liar. It's an incredibly weird pathological decision. And um, when we look at um, how the streaming works, by the way, uh, you might think, uh, well, I listen to complex, like longer songs, and so my money must be going to those artists. But that's not how it works, because what we were talking about before, about how the major labels designed um, the, the streaming system, all of the money from all of the subscriptions gets pulled together, and then the, 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 the music that's listened to the most gets proportionally that revenue. Okay, so it's not that the, the music from your subscription goes to who you listen to, it just all gets pulled, which means that the least challenging music, um, the stuff that you can listen to infinitely on repeat, the stuff in the chill playlists and the ambient stuff, um, that's that's where the revenue mostly goes to. Um, and so that's a, we could do it differently. We'd have user-centric models and um, a, a streaming company called Deezer has been trying to get this off the ground for years, but the big threes blocked it, right? Um, the, the other thing that's happening is that Spotify is also um, struggling here because it's got these really high fixed costs because it does actually pay out most of its money in um, in royalties and its shareholders are demanding that it finds some cost efficiencies and it's trying to create its own choke points. So you might notice um, that it, it, it provides lots of playlists and it really encourages you to listen to those playlists and that sounds like a great value add, right? Excellent. I don't have to think about what I want to listen because Spotify's algorithm is going to tell me. But then we see more examples of enshittification where their interest is now, now that they have trained you to outsource to it what you put in your ears, then it can stop giving you the things that sound the best or that it, its algorithm decides you're most likely to like and give you the music where it has uh, uh, told creators, well, if you agree to a lower revenue, we're much more likely to playlist you. And 
because everybody is so desperate to get heard because there's so much um, competition and uh, amongst creators to get heard, but also um, uh, everybody's earning so much, so little money from this that, you know, half of almost nothing is almost the same amount anyway. You might as well agree to take less. And then it's a systematic race to the bottom until nobody's making anything. And you may have noticed that if you search for an album now, you get a playlist with the name of the album. And it's most of the tracks from the album and a couple of other tracks. And this is this is Paola. This is just Spotify finding ways to charge uh, other artists or labels to be included in these playlists. And it creates an inventory of playlists that they can sell into. So, Corey, I'm glad you brought in the Lucas critique before. But I want to keep on going on, on music and particularly the impact on, uh, on hip-hop. Uh, you make the point that if you're... Uh, music relies on sampling, you're basically now forced to signing up with a big label. Well, why is that? Yeah, so when sampling kicked off, it was considered to be uh, something you didn't need permission for. And that might sound odd uh, in today's uh, environment, but if you think about it in the context of, say, a jazz musician who's playing a solo and drops a couple of bars of some uh, old standard or hit song into the middle of that solo as an homage or as something playful, you know, that's that's not a thing that was licensed. It's not a thing that required permission. It was just part of the give and take of how music is made. And this is intrinsic to music. I mean, there's a reason that anyone can record a cover of any song um, and, and why music is licensed in that way. There's something called the compulsory mechanical license that allows anyone to record anything. When, when Sid Vicious recorded My Way, he and Paul Anka didn't bargain for it. He just paid his fixed royalty. You could cover My Way and put it on a record too, right? It's, it's, um, uh, it's something that anyone can do for any song once it's been recorded once. And when, when hip hop started, people just piled a lot of samples into their music. Uh, the two best selling hip hop albums of all time and the, at the kind of peak of this were BBC Boys, Paul's Boutique and Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. They made millions of dollars. They were hugely influential. They shaped a generation of musicians. Uh, and then uh, a couple of court decisions and uh, changes in the market structure led to a widespread practice of licensing samples, clearing samples. And there was this brief moment where artists did do well from this, a few heritage acts especially, who'd been heavily sampled and, and who'd gotten a very bad deal, uh, got a little bit of extra money. But the labels just said, okay, from now on, if you sign a record deal, you have to sign away your, um, your, your uh, sampling rights. And also, if you want to sample, you have to sign a record deal and sign away your sampling rights. So this becomes a, a means by which they can kind of a, a accelerate this flywheel of control. And it's really interesting to contrast this with this blanket license scheme in which you, instead of having an individual right to bargain, we instead have these collective rights to bargain. You know, for a couple of decades, we've had this real change or maybe a kind of a counter-reformation in the way we think about art. There was this period, I guess in the 80s, where artists really started to pose themselves as kind of individual titans of art and claim that they didn't have influences. You know, I just made this from my own, you know, sprung from my forehead like Athena coming out of the head of Zeus, and no one wanted to admit that they were, that they were making stuff out of other stuff. And starting in the early 2000s with Creative Commons and Remix culture, there was a, a reassessment. And we, you know, kind of admitted to ourselves that Brahms's first was really Beethoven's 10th, you know, and that, uh, and that, you know, uh, Edgar Allan Poe invented the detective story and everyone who writes detective fiction is just doing Poe fanfic. And that just stuff is made of other stuff. No, you know, there's uh, whole like scenes lifted from Kurosawa in Star Wars, you know, and, and that's because we make stuff out of other stuff. But what we never reformed 
was the idea of the individual author as a kind of entrepreneur of the portfolio, right, who, who goes out with this tradable copyright and bargains with it with these large firms. And, you know, in a world with five giant publishers, four giant labels, or uh, four giant studios, three giant labels, two giant ad tech companies, and one company that does all the ebooks and the audiobooks, those tradable rights are not going to do much good for those creators. Giving them more copyright is like giving a bullied kid extra lunch money. There isn't an amount of lunch money that will get that kid fed. And if you just keep giving that kid lunch money, eventually the bullies will have enough left over to run national advertising campaigns saying, think of Australia's hungry, uh, excuse me, think of Australia's hungry children, give them more lunch money, right? And, and it's st still, and yet again, it's not going to get them more money. So we created the sampling right, and the sampling right did not redound to the benefit of artists. It became a source of control. Meanwhile, this collective right, this inalienable right to create uh, um, uh, covers, which I think a traditional economist would say, well, this is a, an inefficiency because somewhere out there is an artist who could get more money if they could sell the exclusive right to record covers to a label. It would raise the price that labels were willing to pay if they could control cover rights. But what you actually get with these cover rights is more money for artists, and it's more money for artists at the bottom of the food chain. It's also more money for artists at the top. So Taylor Swift is the most powerful artist recording music in America today, and yet even she couldn't get her masters back. Her scumbag ex-boyfriend and his pals in private equity took over her, her masters and expected her to continue to work for them under worsening conditions until the copyright expired, which is to say long after her, her death. Uh, and instead, she switched labels. And the reason she was able to switch labels is she paid the compulsory license to record covers of her own music. Right? And so she was able to make new masters of her music. The inalienable right to, uh, to record covers, the collective right to record covers, created a durable benefit that changed the distributional outcomes of the music industry in favor of the workforce in a way that the tradable right couldn't. And I'll, I'll finish this by saying we're at a juncture right now where we're trying to figure out what to do about machine learning models. And there are a lot of creators who correctly observed that machine learning models might displace them with their own works, right? Uh, that, that they could end up seeing their revenue being eroded by scabs that are just robots that stole their voice, right? And that this is a, a very difficult situation. And a lot of them are saying what we need to do is control the right to train a machine learning model, which is to say the right to minutely study their work and learn from it and make new works, we should allocate that as an individual right and give it to these creators to go out and bargain with. Well, we don't have to wait for the future when that right is created to know how it's going to work. Because today, if you're a voice actor in video games, video games employ a large plurality of all voice actors. It's an incredibly centralized industry with controlled by just a small number of uh, highly uh, uh, vertically uh, diversified firms. So Microsoft, obviously, is one of the big ones. If, if you're a voice actor today, Every session when you record starts with you having to say, my name is Cory Doctorow. If your name's not Cory Doctorow, you might not say that. My name is Cory Doctorow, and I hereby grant permission irrevocably to train a machine learning system with my voice, right? So we know exactly what that right looks like if we make it an alienable, tradable right. If we say, you are an entrepreneur of your vocal cords, go out and bargain with this new right. That new right will be instantaneously shifted to portfolios run by large firms that have bargaining power. It's a hard question about what we do about machine learning. I don't know that I know the answer, but I can tell you right now 
that if we give artists the right to decide who can train machine learning models with their work, what we're really doing is giving the monopolists that they already bargain with the right to train machine learning models with their work. You talk in, in, the, uh, in the book about uh, one sector where there is the, the monopolist is so powerful that people were not willing to speak on the record. Uh, and that's, uh, that's live music. Uh, particularly terrifying because uh, we've been telling artists, well, you're not making money out of recordings, go on, go on the road instead. Uh, and yet Live Nation dominates in the US. In Australia, you've got the duopoly of Live Nation and Ticketek with 85% market share. Um, how do the, uh, the, the concert promoters and the ticket sellers get so much power uh, and, and why were people not even willing to go on the record to speak out against them? Live Nation is a really interesting example. Uh, so it's got, um, it, it controls most of the, the, the big concert venues in the world, performance venues. It's also got a music management business, so management and promotion of artists. And yes, it, it bought up Ticketmaster. Um, and at the time, everybody warned, if you let Live Nation control Ticketmaster, that's going to give it a voyeur's view into all of its competitors' businesses. It's going to be able to um, to see um, which which acts are selling well, so that they can snap those up for for promotion. It's going to be able to use those ticket sales to figure out which artists are about to break through, so that they can go sign then up to to new management contracts and away from the the people who've been incubating them and 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 helping develop their careers before that. Um, and it's going to be able to show them which which venues might be struggling a bit and so vulnerable to some kind of hostile takeover. And so understandably, those, those competing venues have tried to, you know, very often tried to opt out of using Ticketmaster so it can't be spied on, but then there are consequences. You know, they're not able to book, you know, a Live Nation acts. Um, and when, when, they were, when, when they would try and withdraw, what, what people describe are actual mob tactics. You know, people are actually, venues are being told, you know, we're not threatening you. We're just laying out your options. That was an, like an actual quote. It was really wild. And we, we really had lived experience of this because we interviewed a ton of people for this book and we always gave them the opportunity to be anonymous if they wanted to. And I think nobody, literally nobody, took us up on that in talking about these other really powerful companies. But I think virtually no one that we spoke to about Live Nation was willing to do so on the record. And the fear was palpable like the, the way like they were just, just checking and rechecking the quotes, making sure they said nothing that could be traced back to them. You know, it was really extraordinary. And the, the way that they've been able to accumulate this is through like that vertical um, uh, integration where they suck up these other businesses elsewhere in the, the value chain. So we have time for a couple of questions. We've got a microphone down here. So if you'd like to ask a question, please uh, make your way up to the microphone. While you're, while, uh, while you're making your way up, I just wanted to add one thing, which is that, as Rebecca says, the, the mechanism by which this happened is not a mystery. Right? We can see the causal relationship. Right? We used to put down rat poison. We had rules against uh, uh, anti-competitive mergers. We didn't have rats. We rescinded those rules. Now we're being overrun by rats. And we devote the second half of the book to describing what we can do to repair this situation. So if you find yourself having gotten halfway through the book and you're hearing a high-pitched noise that you might that you suspect might be a rage-induced aneurysm, keep going because the second half of the book really does present some ways that we can resolve this. Yeah, the second my, my final question just before we go to uh, to open questions. You guys think a lot about 
creativity. What is what did you do differently in the writing process than other authors might have done? What is it about your cultural analysis that made this a different process of, of production? I think there are a whole bunch of things that were different, um, including the fact that Corey is is a, a, a a best-selling writer who who makes his living from writing books, and I'm a law professor. Um, this is my third book, but the first one anyone's actually read. Um, we have very different experience, but the, the the thing that we we brought to this jointly that I think does make it stand out a little bit is that focus on solutions. So so far, the conversation has taken us to talk a lot about the problems, but we were determined that this was not going to be another one of those chapter eleven books. Like we've all read them, 10 chapters about how shit everything is. And then a final chapter at the end where they don't have time to get into solutions, but there's like a little bit of hand wavy stuff like vote harder, right? So our whole second half is like really detailed proposals. We know that um, traditional competition remedies work very poorly in the context of monopsony for various reasons, but there are interventions that do work. So things like directly regulating excessive biopower, um, um, building countervailing power in workers and producers who are most vulnerable to it and encouraging new entrants into the market. So we talk about all kinds of things that we can do, including putting time limits on copyright contracts so people can get their rights back after a certain amount of time, which stops those abusive um, practices where um, companies that were powerful in the past get to control the future. Uh, we talk about things like minimum wages for creative work and very excited to see uh, the, the government's new uh, revive policy, the new Australian cultural policy is talking about an award for creative creative workers, and also promising a whole bunch of money, which is fantastic, $286 million over five years. Um, what we need to do now, though, is to get that money into the right hands, right? There's tons of money floating around the culture industries already, but how do we allocate it? And so there we talk about transparency rights, you know, making sure that people have a right to find out how their works are being used, what revenue is coming in, and how their share is calculated. Um, things like um, use it or lose it rights. You can get your rights back. Um, if they're not being exploited, um, and, and rights to fair remuneration as well. These are things that are already in place in Europe, and these are things that hopefully the government will consider in working out where that money goes. Right, over to the first question. Maybe, maybe some points about questions. Uh, just oh, yes. to just a little benediction you. for you. A sentence is a, a brief st statement that comes up at the end, mm -hmm. uh, ends like uh, on a rising note, and also it has one part and not two, and it's, it's not more of a comment. And, and, so we know. and finally, we will heckle you if you ask a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good to see you, Corey. And no pressure. You can sit back down if you want. <laughs> I think Rebecca's last statement has addressed most of what I've been thinking about. <laughs> when I hear copyright, I think of the word right and responsibility. Um, so I'm thinking copy responsibilities. Uh, Rebecca's addressed a lot of that in her last statement, but could Corey expand on that too, please? Oof. Well, I mean, you know, when we talk about copyright enforcement and, you know, the, the emphasis of the, of the consultation that's underway now on, on copyright in Australia is about copyright enforcement. We, we, we only really talk about half of the copyright enforcement. We talk about how 
um, firms can enforce copyright against other firms for the most part. What, what can record labels do about YouTube? What can YouTube do about streaming sites and so on? W what we don't talk about, and, and from my perspective, what's far more important as, as a creator is enforcing your copyright as a creator as against your label uh, or against your publisher, against your studio. One of the um, uh, things we talk about in the book is that if you audit your royalty statement, which is a thing that's typically guaranteed in your contract, you will often find a discrepancy. Uh, and you know, we cite one firm in Los Angeles that has done tens of thousands of record company audits, uh, and they found many discrepancies over the decades. And in every instance except one, that discrepancy has been in the favor of the label and not the musician. And I have no explanation for this. I can only assume it's some kind of very vexing localized probability storm that torments their CPAs. Um, but if you say, look, I, I want my money, you stole my money, they will say, oh, you musicians are adorable, but you can't do mass for toffee. We don't owe you any money. But just to keep things good between us, we'll give you some of what you think we owe us, and all you need to do is sign a non-disclosure agreement so you can't tell anyone else where we're hiding the money we stole from them. Now, contract is a matter of, 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 of state law in the United States. Uh, all these contracts are settled in four states, uh, New York, California, Tennessee, and Washington. And um, if we were to amend one or more of those state contract laws, or indeed if we were to amend state contracting law here in Australia, to say that as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure cannot be enforced when it pertains to material omissions or misstatements uh, in the, uh, uh, that were down to the detriment of creative workers owed royalties, then you would put more money in the pockets of more artists all over the world than 40 years of copyright term extension combined, right? It's a crack in the machine. We stick a lever in it. We wiggle it around. Money pours out into the pockets of artists. If, if copyright extension is the right to be angry at your listeners for listening to your music the right way, this is the, the wrong way rather, this is the, the right to put uh, groceries on your table and a roof over your head and braces on your kids' teeth. And I think that that's the, that's the part that I'm excited about is how, how we can not just like monotonically expand copyright without regard to what specific copyright we're making, and instead how we can actually like delve into highly technical copyright interventions and non-copyright interventions like contract law interventions with, with a keen eye to what that does to who gets paid and how much. Thanks for your question. Thanks for making time for questions. I've been standing there editing and re-editing to try and make this quick. I want to ask about regulation, particularly in the Australian context. So at the moment, the Australian government's undergoing a massive review of the Copyright Act, along with another bunch of relevant uh, legislation. And um, your book really makes note of different case studies of times that regulation has failed to be effective because gaps that were either not noticed or intentionally ignored. And I sort of want to ask about maybe best practices or tips for particularly lay people, voters and legislators um, to notice and see those, like, those gaps so that we can advocate for more specific and more effective regulation? Yeah, that's a great question. And do you know what? I think this is such an important time to be asking it. And such, there's so much exciting potential to actually change things for the better right now. Um, when it comes to regulation, I think the biggest gap that we've got is that we we assume that if we give copyrights, then that's going to that the value of that is going to trickle down to creators. 
right? And that we don't have specific interventions. We rely um, almost entirely on a laissez-faire approach to copyright. We leave it to the contracts, those individually bargained rights. And what we've seen is how poorly that works. And so what I would, I would invite everybody who cares about this issue, just take a couple of minutes, drop a line to the Attorney General's department, right, who are looking at this at the moment. They're doing the review of enforcement, but as Corey said, it's based on what happens when there's infringement. Drop them a line and say that you care about creators actually having rights secured to them and that you're really interested in them taking a look at things like transparency rights, minimum um, um, rights to fair remuneration and, and things like that. And this is the time, the government is working and the government is listening. Tell them that you care and ask for that. I would be very, very grateful. And I know certainly it's something that I'm trying to mobilize a lot of us to do. And in terms of rules of thumb for good regulation, I would say that the two things that you should be uh, thinking about are administratability, that is to say whether the government can figure out whether or not the regulation is being uh, obeyed or violated, and um, the cost of compliance, whether the regulation is so expensive to comply with that it drives everyone but the largest firms out of the market. We need to think about this in the context of power, right? Large firms um, cheat not because they're made of bad people, but because they're just made of normal people that have all the same incentives of, of everyone else. And in the market, a, a firm is meant to act as a kind of immortal colony organism that uses human beings as inconvenient gut flora. And they will find every mechanism they can to avoid uh, uh, complying with rules, except to the extent that it pads their bottom line. And so you have to assume that the other side is going to do what it can to cheat. And so you want to make regulation where um, questions of whether it's being followed or not too fact intensive. So for example, we could say now that people are standing up their own little Mastodon servers, we could say, okay, well, we don't want you to uh, run a server where if there's bullies or hate speech on it, people can't leave. So you have to not turn off the feature that already exists in Mastodon that allows people to download the list of their followers and the list of the people they follow, which they can take to another server and set up there. So there's an easy way to go from one to the other. It's a super easy administratable remedy, like you can find out whether someone is obeying it, because all you have to do is check whether or not they're obeying it. And you can also... Um, uh, uh, um, uh, force everyone who operates a server to obey it without raising costs because it's just built into the software. So all you're saying is don't turn that off, just leave it on. And if you do that, if you're a creator on a platform where the platform is trying to squeeze you, you can leave the platform without losing your audience. And so this is a way to make sure that, that bargaining power is never captured by that intermediary. Those are the kinds of regulations that I think we need to be smart about regulations that um, ensure lots of uh, choice for artists and that we can, uh, if someone's cheating, we can tell. Okay, so Colin tells me that uh, we've got, we're gonna do a short extension on questions. Normally we'd stop questions now, but I suggest we now move into the rapid response yeah. phase of the evening. All of you guys means, ask your questions. That are uh, we'll take three more questions, yeah. three people li lined up there, and the answers will be extraordinarily concise and to the point. You will only get a response from one author and you will be astounded at right. how pithy those responses are. Let's go. Okay. Sounds, like, sounds like a great book. I haven't read it, but it sounds good. Um, so is it about time we start thinking of these platforms as public utilities and for governments or possibly um, uh, not, not for profit entities to create um, you know, their own versions of these? I'm thinking of Signal as a possible template. 
Uh, are we going to get all three questions and then? Let's do them. Let's okay. do each. each so what I would say is that anyone who lived through the post 9-11 era should be uh, very suspicious of what happens when the state is the ultimate arbiter of who can speak and who's and is in a position to surveil us. Uh, I think that the, pl the right place to do interventions for public utility are infrastructure, not the not the content layer. And that's where what we want the state to do is be a referee among many players, not the sole actor, because we were all there. We all remember what it was like. Thank you. Next question. Um, a lot of venture capital is based on the idea of taking a very big risk with a lot of money and then hoping that that large amount of money is able to stick around for long enough that the risk actually pays off. Um, with interest rates and stuff going up and a lot of the very stupid money, as some people call it, um, going out of Silicon Valley, do you think this is going to result in a better or worse competitive environment for creatives and people like that, um, or are the existing monopsonies just far too large? That's a great question. And I think the issue is the fundamental operating system on which we're, we're working is that money is lent into existence, which means it needs to be paid back with interest, which means that we, we've got a system that demands infinite growth, right? But we know we can't grow infinitely because we are exceeding the bounds of our planet. Um, that's a roundabout answer to say they have to keep growing, they have to keep demanding dumber and dumber money, and they have to keep squeezing people more to achieve it. What we're ultimately going to have to do is change that operating system and move into a more sustainable place in order to change that. Last question for the night. There is a form of creative output, which is not artistic output that everyone in this room pays for. That's the creative output of academics. At the moment, that creative output moves instantly behind a paywall. How would you solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. Right, the allowing the firms that do academic publishing, which is, uh, you know, at root, a, a perfectly decent way to make a living and an honest trade, to merge to monopoly, such that uh, three or four firms now um, require academics to assign their copyright in perpetuity to a journal as a condition of being published. That uh, so their work, which is being paid to paid for by the university is then immediately transferred to a predatory journal that then charges the university tens of thousands of dollars a year for access to it is grotesque. One model that has been very effective is funders making demands as a condition of funding. And this is a thing economists call the Ulysses Pact. When you take something off the table before you go into the negotiation, Ulysses tied himself to the mast before he sailed into the Sea of Sirens so he couldn't jump in. You can say, I'm sorry, I, I am not permitted to sign a contract on these terms because my funder won't permit me to sign a, a, a and so this is nothing to do with me, mate. This is this is down to you, uh, and so I think this is a, a a very very powerful lever that governments have because governments are the largest funders, and governments, as a matter of prudent governance, should not permit this paywalling of academic work because if it's paid for a public expense, it should be in public hands. Yeah, that's the thing. We've got to get the incentives right, right? And we can absolutely do that. At the moment, people need to publish in these predatory journals to get promoted and to get grants and things. We could change, people in this room could change that <laughs> very easily. If we get the incentives right and say, you, the way that you do that is by publishing open access, instantly we fix this. From the Beastie Boys to Ulysses, a wonderful uh, cavalcade of culture. And to wrap us up for the evening, we have Genevieve, Genevieve. Bell to offer the vote of thanks.
And I suspect for all the academics in the room, the phrase, you treasure what you measure, is going to ring around in our ears in a kind of unpleasant way, <laughs> but not an inaccurate way. Uh, look, my name's Genevieve Bell. I am the director of the School of Cybernetics here at the Australian National University. I should cop to the fact that for 20 years I worked and lived in Silicon Valley, and Corey and I have been uh, crossing paths for longer than I think either of us want to care to remember, although I always figured one of the most delightful ways I inappropriately spent my company's money was to recruit Corey and Madeline Ashby and Bruce Sterling and a few others to write science fiction about the company in which I lived and then gave that science fiction back to the company as a way of making them see themselves differently. I always figured that was a, a small moment of inappropriate and delightful fiscal malfeasance. Um, <laughs> but done in full transparency. I want to reflect back to both Corey and Rebecca that this is a remarkable work, Choke Point Capitalism, and really for two reasons. One, because the first half of the book, as you rightly point out, lays out a really clear set of case studies about what happens inside large organisations and inside a very particular form of end-stage capitalism. I also think that the second half of the book is as powerful because what it reminds us is that there are a series of ways that that does not have to be our destiny and that there are a series of activities that as individual citizens and consumers, we can choose to enact and contemplate different relationships, both with those organizations and with their practices, whether it's about how content is created, circulated, and commodified. There are ways we can use regulatory tools and our own agency to contemplate different kinds of futures. I'm also really struck that we're having this conversation four weeks into the fetishization of generative AI. Now, generative AI is not a new thing. Corey and I both know it's been around for a while and it's had a few different labels on it. And I am struck in thinking about it in the context of this book about what the tools are with which we would need to equip ourselves to critique it differently and to be a little less taken with its shininess and a little more willing to unpack what's sitting underneath the quote-unquote hood to that end, I'm wondering if everyone could close their eyes for a minute and imagine a photograph. I know it's a photo you've all seen and I don't have a picture of it here, but I want you to draw it in your mind's eye. It's black and white. Uh, it's a photograph of a building in France, of Gardenau in Montparnasse, and it's a photograph of a train coming out of the end of that building and falling in a heap on the ground. I'm willing to bet you know that picture. You've seen it somewhere. So why is that picture relevant here? Well, the reason that train collapsed out of that system, the railway, and was not stopped in the station but fell onto the ground below it, had to do with a failure of mathematics and of a system of statistical modeling that let you model multiple variables simultaneously. So what is called out of sample prediction. That model is necessary if you have a train on a track with a braking system and you need to model how all trains should stop on tracks with braking systems. And you can't model all trains because that's a bit difficult. What you can do is say, well, trains do this kind of speed range, their braking systems look like this, and tracks look like this. And you model a few trains, and you create a model that says, okay, under these circumstances, trains stop here and do these things. Unfortunately, in Montparnasse back in 1895, the model didn't work. And the train and the tracks and the braking system hadn't sat inside the sample set for which that railway was modelled. It turns out that same statistical model out of sample prediction is what sits under much of the hood of generative AI and in particular ChatGPT. So a model that says we can take all of the data that exists and all of their various relationships and imagine that if you start 
on a dark rainy night, a series of pieces of text follow. What that of course means is that all the text that has come before is now the sample for the relationship that models what sits between words and how words relate to one another. So if you were to open up ChatGPT and put a prompt into it, it will give you a rearranged version of our past to imagine a model of our future. Lots of people are gonna think that's excellent. There are gonna be lots of places where ChatGPT is a useful form of imagining relationships between artifacts. Code will be one of them. Imagining that ChatGPT now gets to take Corey's back catalog and Rebecca's back catalog and my back catalog and rearrange them in a new way. Imagining that they know what we thought we were doing and that this liberates a future is a disturbing new form of control. And when I think about what are the pieces that Corey and Rebecca are laying out that are at our disposal to in critically interrogate this new set of tools, there are some here, but I'd like to add another one which I think is that we also have an obligation as consumers first, but as citizens most importantly, to understand not just the economic rules, but the mathematical ones. And to be able to start to talk about statistics, not magic, and to be able to talk about why those models do and don't work and what informs them and what their limits are is about how we educate ourselves about the future that we are always and already implicated in. So. I want to thank Corey and Rebecca because they have given us a blueprint for critically interrogating the tools that build our present but also our future. And I want to thank Andrew because I know he's always in that conversation with us here as Australian citizens and in our parliament. So with that, I want to thank you on the behalf of the community here at the Australian National University, our friends, our extended collection of people who come to these events to learn and to think and to take forward lessons. And I want to thank you for the ones you've given us here today. Thank you.